and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. It's page 1069 in your pew Bibles. Page 1069, Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to take a look at verse 12. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let's keep that open for a second. So I want to ask this question to people who are under the age of 30, who have been Christians for less than five years, okay? That's still a lot of you. What is Paul talking about? That's my question. When he gives this warning to the church of Ephesus, what, what is he talking about? Who are the spiritual authorities and forces and the heavenly realms, what all is he, yeah, what's this about? All you young people that kind of like to hide during question and answer time, the day of reckoning has arrived. Let's go, sharp people. Where's Abigail Burr? What's he talking about, Abigail? <laughs> Look at her. She's like, dang it. <laughs> okay. Satan can take anything and use it bad. What, what, is it, what does he mean when he say our struggle is not against flesh and blood? What is he trying to say? What's that? Okay. Okay, so our struggle is not against people here and now. It's, it's something that's going on in a supernatural realm. Okay. Let's keep working. We're doing good. Anything else? Any other thoughts? Yes, Zach Miller. Hey, guy, you're a good-looking kid. <laughs> I just think maybe it's deeper, 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 deeper struggle than just on like the uh, surface level. Okay. Just flesh and blood, it's just a lot deeper struggle than maybe we think sometimes. Okay. So he's saying that our struggle not being against flesh and blood means that maybe it's a, a deeper struggle than we realize. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll keep fleshing that out. Good. Now, I want to ask that same group of people, how many of you have heard much about spiritual warfare? Like, in your five years of being a Christian, like, raise your hand if, like, that's a topic I've talked about quite a bit. Claire, awesome. Super, two. All right, good. Why, because your old man told you? Exactly, all right? <laughs> Keith is making sure you understand, right? I would probably have to say, well, my experience was a little bit different, and I'll get to that here in a minute, but I'll tell you why we don't hear a lot about it. So what becomes apparent when we watch a video like that, I think first and foremost, and it's not surprising to you if you watch the news or just follow Twitter, 
or, or whatever, is that um, there's this unbelievably uh, staggering human potential for evil, right? And I don't really have to give you much more information to try to prove that point. I think that's pretty self-evident. And I think maybe the only thing I would add uh, is that my potential for evil is staggering as well. Secondly, what you notice as you look through there, we threw in uh, just a couple of statistics, and it's kind of hard to believe that a large percentage of people in our world, really, believe that Satan is not a real person, that he's not behind all of the tragic and horrific things that we see playing out on our globe on a minute-by-minute basis around the world. One Barner Research study done in 2009 revealed this. 60% of self-professed Christians thought that the devil was just a symbol of evil and not a real person. 60% of people who identified themselves as Christians said that Satan was a symbol and not a real person. That's a problem. I became a Christian in 1985, my junior year of high school, um, a year and a half later, I left to go to college. And that time uh, in our culture, in American culture, and especially really just yeah, in culture, not even just Christian culture, just in our culture, late 80s, early 90s, um, there was just this interesting like um, interest in satanic stuff. Um, and it was just weird. Um, there was a book that came out. In 1986, I'm sure some of you read it. Um, it was called This Present Darkness. How many of you read that book back in the day? Okay, yeah. It was written by um, a Christian uh, author named Frank Peretti. And in the book, he tried to kind of help our imaginations, um, help us imagine what is going on around us in the spiritual realm. And so in the book, there's characters, but there's also demons and he's, he's, he's giving you some insight into what the demons might be saying about us as we go about living our life. And it was really fascinating because it's something we don't talk about or think about much. And it was a bestseller. I mean, it was big. And he had some follow-up books with that as well. So, but it didn't stop there. Um, Satanists and cult leaders were all over talk shows at that time. Oprah, Geraldo, right? Jerry Springer. And news programs like 2020, they were bringing on these people and interviewing them and trying to figure out what's going on. And there was kind of this insatiable appetite that American culture had for things of the occult for just like two or three years. It was like really heavy. And the reaction, the counter reaction to that from the church was pretty alarming. Um, a lot of churches at that time, and, and, uh, and especially youth groups, were like, oh, you've got to burn all of your, your non-Christian music. That's, you know, Motley Crue was coming out with the pentagram on their album. You know, it's like, anybody in a youth group where they burn their CDs? Yeah? Oh, yeah, Justin Amos is right. Yeah, there you go, Brad. Right? Literally, like, they would have gatherings and tell all the kids, bring your stuff, we're going to burn it, you know? And um, my college roommate actually sold all of his non-Christian CDs and then really regretted it about two years later. (laughs) When the phase was over, he's like, oh, are you kidding me? So he went and bought back everything that he sold. So so that was kind of going on. People are are selling stuff. Um, 
Folks were protesting movies that might have kind of painted Jesus in a bad light. Um, and so it was almost kind of like a witch hunt type atmosphere. I mean, it was, it was weird. And, you know, some of the reaction of those that kind of represented the Christian perspective during this time was, was kind of hokey and a bit over the top. But I can tell you this. Satan was on people's radar. I mean, there was this heightened sense of awareness of the spiritual forces of good and evil going on in our world. And, and you couldn't really go very far without hearing something about spiritual warfare. But nowadays, eh, not so much, right? And it was interesting in the, in the early to mid-90s, the, the kind of counter swing to that time uh, led to this phase where people just kind of really kind of laughed at hell and Satan and kind of made it into a big joke. And so that's where you got a lot of the far side cartoons that we saw during that era. I've got a few here, right? These guys are in hell. One guy looks over the other and says, I hate this place, right? Don't tell anybody. This place stinks, right? Next one, right? Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Come on, come on, it's either one or the other, right? Pitchfork in the back. He's probably seen, whoa, slow down, there you go. Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion, all right? And this last one, Gilek says, oh man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything, all right? So this was like, you know, mid-90s reaction to this whole thing, okay? And although it was funny, Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm not sure that it was the best uh, counter-reaction to kind of the satanic hysteria that was going on. There's probably a more appropriate place to land in the middle there somewhere on how we should view um, some of these things. And so I really like um, what C.S. Lewis had to say in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He had this quote. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And so I think at that time we were seeing like two ends of the spectrum and not a really good middle ground there uh, in those. There was either too much focus on it or not enough. And the series that we're going to be spending some time on here for about 10 weeks is entitled Spiritual Warfare and the Lies We Believe. I put it in red to make it seem, you know, <laughs> scary. Um, well, today I'm really just going to be kind of laying the groundwork and really kind of acknowledging what it is that we already know, which is evil is all around us. And we've sensed it, we've experienced it in our life, probably at some level, this, this presence of forces of good and evil We've probably noticed that it roams around in our own hearts and minds a lot more than we'd like it to. And secondly, I want to begin taking a closer look at who Satan is, where he lives, and what he's up to. Justin next week is going to take that topic a lot deeper, um, but we hope to clear up some misconceptions about Satan while also raising um, our awareness of the spiritual battles that are going on around us. So let's begin with kind of that first question is, where is Satan and where does he reside? 
For years, I thought it was my next-door neighbor, but I don't think it is. But um, when we look at things like far-side cartoons and popular culture, we get this uh, thought that Satan is in hell with a pitchfork torturing mean people, right? That's kind of what we think. But the Bible, uh, that's not what Scripture says. So we're going to go to the book of Job. If you could turn your Bibles to Job chapter 1. It's page 462. For new Christians, sometimes this book's always a little tricky because they think it's Job. And it's really Job. So that's God's way of kind of, you know making you work at it a little bit. Job chapter 1, page 462, we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. And one of those we saw in this video here just a minute ago. It says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So here we see that Satan's place of residence is on the earth, okay? He says he's roaming back and forth on it, so he's not in some underground furnace room somewhere. He's here uh, amidst us. What else, did you, what else do you pick up on on that conversation and just that little interaction? What stands out to you? Yeah, Gary? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. What else? Yeah, David? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who's in charge in this interaction? God's in charge, right? He's answering the questions. Satan's coming to him, right? Just like everybody else, knowing, hey, who's the boss here? Okay, so I think that's important for us to keep in mind, is that God's in charge, he's answering the questions. Not only is Satan not currently in hell, but Revelations 1.18 tells us that Jesus holds the keys of death and hell, that he's the one that decides who ends up there. Later in Revelation 20, it says that at Jesus' second coming, when he comes back and ultimately defeats Satan, it says that he will cast the devil and his angels into hell. At that point, okay? So I think it's important that we kind of clear that up, where he is, where he resides, and who's in charge, okay? Satan's residence here on earth is, is really confirmed uh, much more um, when he has some interactions with Jesus during Jesus' ministry when he was here walking around on the earth. Most of us kind of remember, you know, Jesus is baptized, and then it says the Holy Spirit sends him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in some conversations that take place over, I don't know how long, um, Satan is trying to divert Jesus from his mission to, to save us all from sin, to, to die on the cross like he knew he was going to do by tempting him in some different ways. And he asks them three questions and they have this conversation. Jesus responds with some scripture. But the whole time you're reading that interaction, you're very much picturing Satan as an entity, a person, 
not just a symbol of evil, but Jesus is speaking to someone face to face, okay? So if we assent to the reality of the devil in this world, then it beckons the questions, what is he up to? And what does it mean for us as followers of Christ? What's he up to? What does it mean for us? Okay, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. John 10.10 is probably one of the verses that a lot of us are very familiar with in the New Testament, right? You've probably seen this verse before. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, a lot of times when you see that verse, you only see half of it, right? There's actually a Young Life magnet on my refrigerator that has the second half of that verse and not the first. So Jesus, in this verse, he's offering life, right? Full and abundant life, and and we all want that, right? Right? But he's also saying, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to fight for it because you have an enemy. And in our last series, we talked a lot about John 14, 6. That verse where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Right? And we talked about how in order to get the life that Jesus is talking about there that we have to do it by living in his way, that we can't just live our way and think that we're going to get the life that he's talking about. And so we talked about that tension for, for many months. And so now, again, in another verse, the offer again is life. But this time Jesus is saying, you can experience that. You can have it. I want to give it to you. But it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a battle. And I think a lot of Christians get really disillusioned here because we 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 hear all the time oh jesus wants to give us this abundant life and you can have it and life to the full but we don't talk about the full story and so hopefully we're going to shed some light on that today but now i want to talk about the question why why is satan so hell-bent on destroying you and i it says that he wants to steal kill and destroy us that's how jesus describes satan's actions on this earth and his mission so why us what could we possibly possess that he's so upset about that's what we need to figure out so i want you to turn your bibles to psalm chapter 8 just the next book over from job there page 495 Psalm 8, verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Verse 2 baffles me. What is David saying in verse 2? What are the implications of what he's saying there? 
Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Not that I don't know the answer. I'm just baffled by the answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, if we're rooted in God from the beginning, from a young age, that as those lies and those things come along in our life, that we'll be able to withstand those things, okay? What else? Praise is a powerful weapon, weapon. okay? What else? Yeah. Okay, so he's saying we were born created in the image of God and that that's something that the enemy would be hostile towards. Okay, what, what's tricky for this in me is, you know, through the praise of children and infants, like I can get the children part, but infants, like a lot of infants I know can't even really talk. Like, so, or barely can babble. So what is it about just their presence that silences the foe and the avenger? And I think you're on the right track there. Let's keep looking. It says, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So as Matt said, in Genesis 1, in the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, it says they were created in the image of God. Psalm 139, which David wrote, he said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then as we see in Psalm 8 this morning, it says, David also writing, he crowned us with glory and honor. We are image bearers of the King of Kings. And Satan is the sworn enemy of God. And he was cast out of heaven because of his pride and arrogance and his lack of contentment with what God had given him. He wanted more. And we are made in the image of God, so by default, we are Satan's enemies too. And so from the very moment that we are born, and I was thinking about this because Brent and Kelsey Irwin from our church, they just had their baby on Friday, right? A newborn child. From the very moment we are born, we are assaulted by our enemy who is trying to stain, he's trying to distort, he's trying to crush, he's trying to harm, he's trying to wipe away our glory. And his goal for each one of us is to lie to us, to get us to believe that we are less than God says we are. Do you understand that? His goal from the very beginning of our life is to lie to us in a way to get us to believe that we are much less than God says that we are. He is trying to kill, still, and destroy 
our identity as beloved children of God. Satan, unable to conquer and overthrow God, has turned his sights on you and me. And he is relentless. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that Jesus understood how big of a threat that is to us. The seriousness of our predicament. And so when he came to earth, he came to fight. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said this, Do not suppose that I came, I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus went on to defeat Satan in order to offer us victory and protection over the enemy. And because Jesus rose again, we who are his followers, he said, I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be my very presence living inside of you, dwelling in your hearts. And of that presence, that Holy Spirit in us, 1 John 1, 4, 4 says that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, than Satan. So we don't fear him, okay? He can't take away our eternal salvation. So we don't have fear over him. But through his attacks and assaults on our life, there are some things that he can do. He can render us ineffective. He can destroy our marriages. He can fill us with guilt and shame that that cripples us and keeps us hidden. He can frustrate us, those of you who are people pleasers out there, because you just can't seem to make everybody happy all the time. And probably most importantly in our culture, he can lull us to sleep and he can distract us by focusing on material things and self-centered pursuits and probably most importantly, busyness so that we forget our mission to reflect the glory of God in this world, to make disciples of the nations, to share the good news with people. Satan is subtle. He doesn't always have to just like hit us in the head. He can just keep us distracted, keep us busy. Keep us focused on other things. He can do those things, and you better believe that he'll do it. And the birth of Christ was an invasion against the forces of evil in our world. And as you look at Scripture, from the very moment that Jesus began life here, Satan was trying to figure out, how am I going to snuff it out? And so he, he, he put himself into King Herod and to the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders when Jesus was doing ministry, and eventually the Romans to, to try to, to conquer him and to stamp out his life. And when he couldn't do that, when Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death on the cross, Satan turned his attention to us, his followers, 
I want you to turn your Bibles, last verse we're going to look at, to Revelation, very last book in the Bible, chapter 12. Revelation 12. I don't know if you've ever read Revelation, but it's really confusing. There's a lot of imagery there. And so I'm not going to try to break all of this down for you and explain what all this means. I don't even know what it all means. And that's not the really the important thing because there's some very things that are very clear, and that's what I want to focus on, okay? So just hang with me. There's going to be some stuff you're like, what? Don't worry about it. All right? Verse 1 of chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon, Satan, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child, Jesus, the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Skip down to verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now go all the way down to verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So Satan, it says, went off to make war, to steal, kill, and destroy. And whether you understand all of that or not, the reality is that we are living in the midst of a cosmic battle that is going on all around us. And the forces of good and evil are waging war. And the sooner we come to terms with this truth and begin acting like we are at war, the more our lives are going to start making sense. John Eldred's in his book, Waking the Dead. If you haven't read this, it's one of my favorite books of all time. So... He kind of explains it like this. He says, until we come to terms with war as the context of our days, we will not understand life. We will misinterpret 90% of what is happening around us and to us. It will be very hard to believe that God's intentions towards us are life abundant. It will be even harder not to feel that somehow we are just blowing it. Before he promised us life, Jesus warns us, warned that a thief would try to steal, kill, and destroy it. How come we don't think that the thief then actually steals, kills, and destroys? You won't understand your life. You won't see clearly what has happened to you or how to live forward from here unless you see it as a battle, a war against your heart. 
and you're going to need your whole heart for what's coming next. I don't mean what's coming next in the story I'm telling. I mean what's coming next in the life you're living. There are a few things I know, and one thing I do know is this. We don't see things as clearly as we ought to, as we need to. We don't understand what's happening around us or to us or to those we love, and we are practically clueless when it comes to the weight of our own lives and the glory that's being held back. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, opportunity to come to your word this morning, uh, to, to become aware of a couple things, Lord, who you are, that you're a God who's victorious, that you conquered death, uh, conquered the enemy, that you're in charge. But Lord, um, you're also making it very aware to us that in order to have the life that you want for us and that you promised, promised us that we have to fight, that we have an enemy who is, is out to get us. And Lord, it's, sometimes it's hard to live in the... Um, uh, just the awareness of that on a daily basis, waking up with the understanding, hey, you're in a battle. You're a soldier. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through this series that maybe a, a new awareness or a deeper awareness or a reawareness of this truth will, will capture us, Lord, not to put us in a place of fear, but in a place of understanding, God, of of what we're supposed to do with this truth, how we're supposed to live, how do we combat the lies and the attacks of the enemy as he tries to rub out and wash away and, and make us forget our glory. God, that we were created in your image, that we are image bearers of the God of the universe, and that that's a threat to Satan. So Lord, we thank you for this time. Pray, God, that we would learn a lot and apply a lot and begin maybe living with a new awareness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.